hello, Darren. <laughs> how are you, Dominic? Not so bad, as my mother used to say. Hello, how are you? <laughs> Just your mother used to say uh, that, did she? She did. She had a very original way with the greetings on the phone. You all right? Yeah, not so bad. And yourself? Good, man. Um I've just I've, before we got on, I was just thinking what I was what have, what have I been up to this week? And one of the things I've been doing is playing video games. And have I ever told you how much I absolutely treasure playing a good video game? You know, you haven't except by accident when I've said, "What are you doing this weekend?" When Brooke and the boys are away, and you said, "I'm going to eat a steak and I'm going to play video games." Oh, stop. <laughs> Remember the times that you used to have an empty house? Oh, <laughs> don't say it. Uh, that, uh, that time will come back soon enough. Don't worry. I do. I just, I just love it. And I kind of went, you know what? I'm not spending money on anything. I'm, I'm not spending money on extra food. I'm, I'm not spending money on booze. And I thought, treat yourself to a video game or two. They're not expensive, like 15 bucks, 20 bucks, maybe. And I've sat and I've played some, it's just like, it's it's like you get to jump into a piece of art and just revel in it and get lost in it. I don't know, I, 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 it's near, it's near meditation, like it's, well, it gets near what I get kind of from, from surfing, that kind of mindless mindfulness, if that makes sense. You kind of just lose yourself, really go off, so, solve a few puzzles. Like I play, I play particular types of stuff. Like I play, what ones are? I'm in the middle of one called Night in the Woods, which is almost like a, it's very, it's very teen centric, um, story of a a young cat who comes back home to her her town. She's just dropped out of college, and her friend has just come out, and there's like secrets happening in the village. But you're like this cat, and you're just kind of knocking around the village. You mean a cat? Like, like a, a cat. cat? Yeah, it almost right. looks like it's an animated. It's very animated, almost comic book style. Um, speeches done, text bubbles. Another one I'm playing is called Gris, G-R-I-S, where you just, this is beautiful. It's almost like you're inside a, a Japanese style painting. And it's just like, it's a platformer, but every every painting, every every frame is a painting, is what I was trying to say. Just right. gorgeous. And then these soundtracks that are just like butter, they're just gorgeous. You just lock in. There's a you lose an hour, so that's what I've been doing a fair bit of that. Wow, um, because because I think I'm struggling with music at the minute. It's funny, like I'm uh, I'm struggling with what? old time music versus Irish music and and what to listen to and what to play and so instead Strugg- of struggling, like what do you mean? Just that, like um um, you know yeah yeah I just, I've been. I've been actually just going and listening to techno because I just can't. I can't get into either. I can't just can't find a sweet spot. Right. So you, so you, you do what anybody does when they're when they're torn between old time and Irish, which is go to techno. Exactly. Aye. You I and don't know. you and Derry Farrell. Well, I was actually just <laughs> listening to the Prodigy this evening, a uh-huh. classic number from 1994 called Voodoo People. On the radio with my boys, and Aiden gave it a seventy-five percent bad out of a hundred. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's that's, that. That's hilarious. So are they? Are they? Are they techno? Yeah, in in the in the broad term, techno. Yes. Right. Okay. So, um, right. So what's house then? I've never really known what house is. What's house? What characterizes house? So. Kind of house was born out of disco, so like if you've got that disco, if you can conjure the disco sound in your head, the house yeah. would be the end of, of dance music that lives in that. It's much more playful. Usually, a lot of times has um, a lot of times has vocals. It's a uh, like very dance floor friendly. Be probably a lot of songs in major keys or tunes in major keys, I should say. See, it's not just traditional music. I mix up songs and tunes. I do it in, <laughs> in techno too. <laughs> um, yeah, so kind of that's where it originated from, and it's kind of like a, a what disco morphed into. Right. So then, where does techno come on the on the evolutionary line? I'm, I'm, you know that, I'm, I'm picturing where we are now as the upright human, and yeah, yeah. Uh, disco as the chimp. 
So where where's the kind of... <laughs> so techno kind of came in via... So house became big in Chicago. And because um, it used to be played in this warehouse and people would go into like the whatever the local record store was on the Saturday and Sunday after the Friday, Saturday night party. And they'd be like, hey man, have you got any of that like warehouse music, that warehouse music? I want to get some of that warehouse music. And it got short down to house music, right? So that's where it got its name from in Chicago. And then when that music started to go to... Um, Detroit, Detroit at the time, probably a bit more of a uh, industrial city, car manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So the house music started to get mixed with like 808 machines, which kind of have a very definite kick drum and a snare sound. So you had these kind of very, um, a lot of euphoric and kind of um, upbeat disco slash house tunes coming in. But then they were actually getting layered by the DJs in Detroit with with these eight hundred eight machines that were adding that kind of mechanical, repetitive, kind right. of taking craftwork sounds and putting it with disco sounds and making mm-hmm. it all much more, a bit more aggressive, a bit more um, minimal. And then like, people started to actually just strip away bits, so you just left with those um, straight four four rhythms, and that's very broadly where techno came from. So techno right. is more, usually when you're thinking techno it's usually much more repetitive but that's like the straight techno a bit more repetitive a little bit more aggressive but then there's lots of different styles within that jesus i could go on all night about this stuff but anyway that's right. that sounds a bit like a, an old time session it's a, it's it's like asking me what the difference between the donegal style and the uh sleeve root lucra i think <laughs> oh don't ask me um yeah. I no, but it, it, but it is funny. I was so happy. Well, that the, that techno thing though, like the the repetition. I mean, I remember you telling me the first time you took me to a festival, to a, an old timey festival. That part of what you really loved was the repetition of going around uh, a tune. You know, there's for a great ten fifteen minutes. Just there's a great quote from remember remember um, spaced. No, it wasn't space. It was. Oh, yeah. It wasn't space. No, no, no. I'm thinking wrong. It was uh, the Mighty Bush, and it was the DJ. Uh, the Vince character was DJing in it, and uh, oh, maybe it wasn't the Mighty Bush. It was his character? I'm butchering the story. Anyway, long story short is there's like this guy DJing, and someone walks into the room, and it's like, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. he's like, the best bits in an hour and a half. <laughs> that still makes me laugh so much i have found myself on a dance floor without speaking to someone for easy an hour two hours i'm thinking yeah the best bits in an hour and a half <laughs> i'll be listening to techno and brooke will stick her head in and we're like i'll give her a nod and she'll say what's up best bits in an hour and a half is it <laughs> uh fantastic you i'm glad you there. mentioned i'm glad you mentioned space there as well because I'm, I'm i'm wondering if there's uh, um, anybody who has listened to listens to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast who is not aware of Spaced and if there is you should go and find it because it's one of the finest artistic products of any time anywhere completely just brilliant brilliant just um, actually I'm not going to do a Patreon call out I should think if you haven't watched it stop what you're doing right now turn off this this is nowhere this does not deserve to be on your radar go and watch <laughs> go and watch it it is yeah. so good. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost at their finest. Yeah. So so today, um, I, in a bit of a departure uh, this week, we have a, a really interesting a really interesting show. We decided to do something a bit different because um, a few weeks ago we were speaking to Rob Zielinski, the fiddle player from Perth in Western Australia. And in the course of talking to him, um, it became clear that he has this very special relationship with Mick Doherty, who is a, a fiddle player from Donegal. Um, who was born in 1929, I think, and was a really one of a, a very famous family of fiddle players from Donegal. His father was a great player. His uncle was a fellow called Johnny Doherty, who is an iconic figure in the history of uh, Irish fiddle playing and about whom there's an amazing documentary, uh, which you can watch, which we'll link to in our show notes, called Fiddler on the Road. So Mick Doherty um, was born in Donegal and ended up living in Western Australia in Perth, which is where he first came into contact with Rob Zielinski. And by hook and by crook, eventually Rob 
managed to get in touch with Kevin Bradley at the National Library in Canberra and they did a series of recordings of Mick talking about his life and talking about his music and talking about the the lineage that he comes from, the musical lineage and also just um, uh, just lots of aspects of life that he remembered from when he was growing up. So today's episode is an hour, uh, maybe a bit more, of Mick Doherty um, interviewed by Kevin Bradley from the National Library uh, in Canberra. And it's kind of amazing, in part because um, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about music in here, but there's also just an, a, amazing descriptions of just the the life that Mick witnessed as he was growing up and the, the characters in his family. And he's, a, he's just a brilliant storyteller, and it's it's just great to listen to. So that's today's episode. And we'll put the... Are, um, Sorry, Sorry go on. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Will, um, the liner notes that come with uh, Rob's CD, we struggled getting them up the last time, so we're going to have another pass at that. There's um, anyone that's interested, which I'm just, you should be. It's an incredible story. The liner notes to to Rob and Mick's CD we'll put up on on somewhere where everyone can read them. Um, check the show, the show notes, and in the description will be a, a link to, to view them somehow. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, <laughs> um, when I was in Scotland at uni, right, there was a bus that used to go from Glasgow to Donegal. And when you got on that bus in Glasgow, Queen Street, in the in George Square, you were in Donegal the minute you got on that bus. It How was so? like, it, it just, the voices, the accents, um, the crack, the smoke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. And that was a bus that would kind of drive down the west of Scotland to Stranraer and then over on the ferry and then right over to Donegal. Collins's bus. Anybody who, uh, anybody who's lived in Scotland will know it well. And um, the reason I mentioned that was just because I was trying to think of uh, an equivalent to the experience of hearing Mick Doherty's voice. Because when I heard Mick Doherty's voice, I just felt like I was in Donegal. I mean, it's amazing. His accent and just his way with language and... Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful artifact, this this recording. So, um, And just one last note, just by way of explanation. The tunes that you're about to hear as well in this interview are Mick Doherty and a few tunes also where Mick plays with Rob Zelensky. And so, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. So, Oh, and just before we start... <laughs> um, a uh, quick note to say thanks very much to Kevin Bradley and to everybody at the National Library for giving us the authorization to use this. Um, it's all available uh, publicly um, on their website. You just go through, if you search for it, um, as I say, we'll have a link. But um, yeah, check it out. With that, I think we'll just get on with it. What do you reckon, Darren? Let's get into it. All right, here we go. Mick Doherty. Enjoy. Thank you. 
This is um, Kevin Bradley talking to Mick Doherty in the National Library Studios. And Mick, you know, it's really a great pleasure to have you here in the library to chat. Thank so, you. And find out a little more about your, your musical heritage and, yes, and, yeah. and the things that... Yeah. Um, uh, the things that influenced you. So, tell us a bit about your your father and his playing, the style of playing. Well, he was a self-taught man. His own style. He had his own style from the rest of the brothers. But they could play together when they wanted to. But my father uh, could be... Uh, an Irish fiddle player, or he could play professional music just by ear. He only he only had to hear things once or twice, and he could come and walk the door and pick the fiddle up and play it as he walked away from the picture house, wherever it was. He had a great ear for music, great talent for music. But he didn't have partly any education at all. But um, on other things, just the style, you're saying he was different from the other brothers. Yes, he was very, very different. Um, he was a very quiet man. You know, a man who could sit and listen to you talking all day and not open his mouth. Mm-hmm. And you could ask him a question and he could sit talking to you all day and, and tell you things you never heard of before. That was the type of man he was. Uh, and... and that Lenny wanted for nothing. People used to even come from distance away, up the other part of Ireland, mm-hmm. different counties. He used to have a lot of clergy come and talk to him. He was very intelligent on the, the clergy side of it. He was a very religious man as well, you know, and um, a lot of priests used to come there on their way passing through to go to America or to the Far East and the foreign missions. And they would come there and they'd be there all day with them, you know, talking different things, talking in Gaelic and talking in English and different things, how he found them. And some of them would even have a drink with them. And he would have a drop of the spare stuff, you know, the strong stuff made out of way somewhere. And they would have a drop of that. And uh, when they got a drop of that down, and my father started playing the fiddle, <laughs> they weren't saying the rosary, they were singing and dancing. Oh, I've seen them in there, like two or three young priests going away saying goodbye at home, and that's what they'd done. They forgot about everything else, just the music they wanted, and the dancing. And mm. my mother's better cooking, what she had there. Yeah. So, your father was one of ten brothers and sisters? Uh, no, uh, six. Six? Six brothers. Six brothers? Yeah, let me think now. There was uh, my father, John, Simon, Mickey, and Char- no, five brothers. Five brothers? Five brothers, Charlie. So were all five brothers fiddle players? All, all what? All the, the lot was all fiddle players. And yeah. my father was the best fiddle player of the lot. Be truthful, John couldn't carry his case. No, that is an honest fact, you know. And with that, that'll not with my father. He couldn't be jealous of nobody. But there was always that little bit jealous of John. That he he never could ca- catch up on my father. Mm-hmm. My father could do things with a high level. He'd tie up a knots and John would try it. And he couldn't even tune the, tune the fiddle for it. So, your father, just come back to your father again. Mm-hmm. And his strength of character. Yeah. Does that... Um, because you're saying he was different style of musician to all the others. Is that strength of character because of that? He didn't want to play like his father, or? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. No, he was very fond of his father. Yeah. Uh-huh. And his father was very fond of him because he could do what my grandfather couldn't do. And my often hear my grandfather saying to him, "You know, for God's sake." Try and play the old way, you know, you listen to. He would say, Father, I, I can't. It's just naturally, it just comes to me. He said, when I'm playing the fiddle, I can't do. It'd be the same reel as my grandfather, but the dressing on that reel, it'd be like you and I cooking a dinner, compared to a chef. He was the chef for that reel, and my, my grandfather was the cook. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, rest of you want to hear him play the high-level hornpipe.
Oh, you wouldn't hear a scratch on the ball or anything at all. So where did he learn that style from? I, I, th- I think it was a gift from God. I, I never could describe it any, any other way. It was a, an individual gift. And uh, I, we're playing there now and I don't care how tired you were. You would have to hear, sit and listen to that air through before you fall asleep with a few pints down you, you know. Uh, he, was, he was a great man and he was a great saddler. He's in the cross harness. Yeah. And that was all self-taught. He used to make his own designs for the saddle, for the collar, the britching and everything like that, out of brass. He get a big sheet of brass, he had to cut all these out, put figures and numbers and writing on them and uh, raise them up with a raisin hammer and a block of wood till they look, you know, right up, maybe a half inch above the leather. Mm-hmm. And he used to do his own polish and he'd polish that brass and what he used to use for to polish the brass was the ashes from the fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You get the, the white and red ashes come from the peat and some of the peat, there might be um, blue clay in it. So the brown clay would be very blue clay and they were mixed together. I was like brassel. You could clean anything with it. Yeah. Mm. Wow. And uh, some of his uh, work, some of his work even went over to England, and some of his work went to America. Some of the inks used to come over there, and the moneyed men with Irish background, and they would hear of my father, yeah, and they would come and see him. And it, un- honestly, in a way, I look at you sometimes. It kind of put me in mind of you. <laughs> yeah, yes, he was so, you know. Uh, Settled in his ways, and you know, he, he never forced nothing, mm-hmm. but yet, no, any job he done was done in record time, yeah. Mm. And uh, oh, there's so many things you can't really remember, you remember, but you can't yeah. put them over, like you know. Now, you were talking when we were talking about the metal topped fiddle the other day, yeah, yeah, that was his work. Oh no. He, no, he could do that. Yeah, he could do any kind of brass work, but um, that work was more or less my uncle Mickey and How's my grandfather's Mickey? work. All right, you know. Yeah, he. Um, I think he might have made one or two, but it was before my time. All right, you know. Yeah. I think he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't too interested in the tone of them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, that that he called it a day with him. Uh, I'll ask about those in a minute. But tell me, did you learn much music off your father? All of mine. All of yours. All of mine. All of mine and all 78s from Michael Coleman. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's what I liked about Michael Coleman's playing. I was always a bit slow in the uptake of learning the tune, where my father could turn around and be sat there listening and look at someone, and he'd hear that tune, he'd pick the fiddle up or take it down off the wall where it used to hang, and he'd dribble over it, and this tune, you'd know it was the same tune, three or four times and then you draw the bow and the fiddle and that reel would come out just like the bloke who was playing it. Wow. Yeah. But you, you said you were slow on the uptake. I was slow on the uptake of picking it up. Yeah. Because again there was so much in that. Sometimes you, you have patience and they say oh no don't do that just you know do this and they show you what to do like you know. See if you're playing a reel and you had to use a two strings with one finger and use the bow two or three times. What he would do, he'd have flat, flat finger, and take mm-hmm. two or three strings at the one time with them, mm-hmm. and just from the top of the bowl down to the frog, everything was in that area was taken out with one bow. Yeah. Yeah, you just reach up and you got to come all down, you know, and then all come down to the bottom. He'd nearly take the half a reel with them. <laughs> <laughs> so he would use a very long bow to play a tune. Is that what you're saying? Well, he used, but yeah. he could use any part of the bow. Yeah. As you or I and I might use the tip of the bow to dribble with, you know, he, he could come right the way down like that. Yeah. Like a little bird dancing and go up the same way, like, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. And he was, he was saying out there, you're not, not, you're not doing what I showed you to do. <laughs> I just say, Dad, I can't. 
you, you come down that bulbert ten times, you know. <laughs> and then you take a foot and laugh and take his hat, cap off and take your belt to the cap, you know. That was a joke to him. Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me that um, that you said your father died not long after your grandfather. That's right, yes. Yeah. So, so really, um, um, by the time John Doherty becomes comes into his own as a fiddle player, yeah. um, your father was already gone. I was gone, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And that's... The glory was gone. Yeah. And then John came into the fore. Yeah. Although there'd be people come to, come to the town, or the little village it was, we lived in a, a little, uh, what do they call them? Semi-attached yeah. houses, like, you know. And they would come there, and uh, oh, there'd be a seat for them to sit down and a mug or something to give them a cup of tea. And then people would walk past you on the street, and I'd come in there to see my father. Yeah. You know? And something for him. Or always a drop of potting or something for him. Give me, he'll give you a bottle, something like, you know? <laughs> and before he left that bloke, the bottle would be opened and they would see it off between them. <laughs> <laughs> and then the bloke would say, I'll be back in a minute, Jimmy. Yeah. And then he'd come back then with real whiskey and would have a good session and the old man would be forced to take down the fiddle. And then when he got a few huskies down him, that's when the fiddle used to ring. You were in a, what they call, the spout yard. You had to come in about 25 y- yards from the main street and then to the spout yard where the horses and carts used to come in and stall in there for whatever business I had to do. And I'll guarantee you, you go out, my father be playing then on good for him. And you go out there, that house, and you go right up and round the corner and on to the main street and you'd hear that fiddle ringing on the main street. And that's when the crowd would develop then. <laughs> um, must have been wonderful music. Oh, God, so they'd be looking in the wind at him. Yeah. yeah. He, he didn't care. Oh, my mother sometimes say, oh, I wish the court you get rid of that fiddle. <laughs> <laughs> so, so who else played with your father then? Did he play solo mostly or did anybody do that sort of the um, doubling with him? Oh, or? there were plenty of... What the, what they were known as country fiddle players. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they would be classed as no good. <laughs> you know what? what? <laughs> I said, I'm yeah. a country fiddler. He's not bad, but he's a country fiddler. They would come in there and get a few lessons from my father, and he would like their company, yeah. you know. And, um, well, what do you think about that, Hughie? Oh, good, you've come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> so if they, if they were called country fiddlers, what, yeah. would, what would they have called your father? Oh, well, <laughs> the class and the, the world's greatest, to be quite honest with you, like, you know. You'd hear them maybe weeks, months after, you might be somewhere and go, seriously, say, do you know who I heard yeah. a few weeks ago? No, Jimmy Doherty played for me. Yeah. <laughs> then another bloke would say, well, how did you feel? Uh, <laughs> did did Hugh and John ever play together that you heard? The, well, they did. They played at dances and weddings together. Yeah. But... My old man, his health was gradually breaking down, and yeah. he would go and he'd play there. Maybe a, he would play the waltzes, my father, yeah. and John would run an octave for him. But when John would play for um, set dances like the half sets, or a full set, or a 16 hand reel, or an 8 hand reel, a Mazorca, or a German, or a Highland, John would play because he's the strongest fiddle player. And my father would run the octave for him, you know. And it's just like the drone of a bagpipes all the time coming through from his fiddle on to John, like, you know. The things he could do, the different tones he could take out of that fiddle was nobody's business. Any any tune anybody played, he could find an octave for it, you know. And then he'd have maybe an hour of that to create a rest and he'd feel better now to see John going over. And then he'd jump into John's position and he was just as loud as John only sweeter, you know, different. Uh, it's very hard to explain. It's like out of the blue, maybe 30, 40 birds come and they all start singing beautiful. That was the feeling it had, like, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
So tell us about your, your last memory of your grandfather. Uh, God rest him, the last me- memory of him was uh, I was about eight. And it was in the 30s. I would say it had been 37, maybe. Oh, no, it be before that. 32, somewhere 32, there. around that figure, maybe 34. Yep. And uh, my mother was having twins, and she was 45. Uh-huh. Well, you know nothing about these things, but it seemed things, things were a bit hard. And uh, my mother had to go to uh, a hospital, what they call the county home, mm-hmm. for the poor and delicate ones. Like, but they had other places, that had a beautiful hospital there, ran by nuns for cases of my mother going on there to have children. And uh, my father, you know, he was broken-hearted. He was down and out. For the first time, he was on his own, away from his wife, see? And he mentioned to Marianne, my mother, Marianne, he said, Marianne, he said, he was a very man who liked to agree with his wife. Marianne, he said, would you mind if I take Mickey with me? I'm going to my father for a while and my mother when you're in there. Because he knew everything was going to happen. There were going to be twins born and there was nothing. Oh, by all means, she said, said, you can have the lot. (laughs) No, he said, no, I laughed between them. like, And anyway, him and I headed off. We walked about about 25 miles to where my grandfather was living. And John was there. He was living there with my grandfather and my granny. And John, I never, I never really took to him too much. Being a little boy on your own there, no one and bare feet and not much to wear. And uh, he never, if he went away shopping, now be like a big girl, not to be. Don't mention it this way when you call him a big girl, but I felt that's the way he was, you know, big. And uh, if grandfather used to use him when he was a full-grown man, like, you know, he was a fine-looking man. He'd half, he'd walk three or four miles away and get the shopping done and pick up their pensions and take that back. But never in his life, the time was there, did he come back to me and with a hypnose with the sweets mm-hmm. as a little boy, like, you know. And them was the things that stuck out in my mind. Yeah. But yet, and on, seeing and seeing and mystery, I couldn't, I couldn't help it, but my love had to go to him, you yeah. know. yeah. But anyhow, you want to ask me about the last of my grandfather? Yeah, the last time we saw your grandfather. Yeah. I think he was my age then, he was 80, uh, 85. Right. But a strapping big tall man, he was just like a fishing rod, but not a pick of food on him. And he always had that blackthorn stick. And he, he, he'd rig up his rod, he had a beautiful rod. Everything he had, to be honest with you, didn't suit the, the position of the family. Do you follow know what I mean? No, I don't quite know what you mean. Well, put it this way, they had nothing, and I turned round at my grandfather, had everything that nobody else had. Oh. Handmade clothes, to start with. Big, big silver watch, probably at that time it was worth pounds. Blackthorn stick, you know, and all these sort of things. I never wanted nothing of nobody. Always paid his way. But never give nothing away. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was the bank and if you want the loan you didn't get it. As simple as that. And um, that's the reason why John stopped with them so long. He was reared by them, yeah. fed by them, financed by them in every way, anything he wanted he got. If he wanted a pair of shoes where another man might have to buy an old pair of hobnail boots with steel toque or whatever they were, studs and mm-hmm. steel, you know, and Abby's boots. They, they were dead lucky to get a pair of them and have them repaired again. Where John could go down away to the town, wherever it was, and buy a pair of shoes, like, you know, for, uh, oh, what do they call that stuff? You no, know, it shines when you buy it, the leather. Oh, boot polish. Um, yeah, no, not boot polish, but the, the leather was so good. Patent 
Uh, you like patent. Patent leather. Now, yeah. he has come back with a pair of them boots and God knows what the cost. And anything you wanted, new socks, new underwear and everything. The old grandfather used to pay for that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he welcomed him back home as of his little baby. Uh-huh. Did you have a good day, John? Yes, oh yes. Did you see anyone? No. Did you get any news from me? No. Little <laughs> 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 of nowhere. <laughs> and that was the life. Mm-hmm. So. And the old lady would, grandmother would cook. And uh, John always had the priority of what food was there, who got served first, and everything like that. And <coughs> then my grandfather was second. And then whoever was there, he was third, fourth, and then down the line, he was coming to me and I used to get nothing. And <laughs> 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 he would see thought was good enough for me. Yeah. And then... Uh, my mother had twins. Oh no, living out part of the story. Yep. My grandfather was taken ill. And uh, I remember he couldn't um, sleep in an ordinary bed, but it was wrong. And they had a thatched house, two, uh, two bedrooms, in the kitchen and a bedroom off the kitchen, what they called a, an offshoot. Mm-hmm. Well, they could have a double bed there. And that's when I was there for a few weeks. I slept with my father and that. And he was put sleeping alongside the fire, the fire burning constantly all the time. And sacking, you know, that sacking that they use, putting corn or something in, or flour or something in. And I think it was my father made a mattress for him like that and stuffed it with very dry, soft hay, you know and big deep matters that wouldn't and that's where he lay on the floor was covered on the top of the floor first and this bed on top mm-hmm. you know and uh, he come in he come and sit beside me say for a little while and he, anything he, he ever ate which I never seen him eating when he what they called a farthing biscuit it was a biscuit about four inches in diameter and about a quarter of an inch deep and the granny had given that a copper, no, there were a bowl. Remember the, you remember, oh, you wouldn't remember, there were these bowls, you know, with these having the dressers. Mm-hmm. Instead of cups or anything else, there were these bowls. And there used to be 12 of them to a dresser, one inside the other coming across. And give them a bowl of tea, and they'll just finger inside that on one side and drink it like that, mm-hmm. you know? Or if, there's a, if they had uh, nothing in the other hand, if they'd had a slice of bread and was gone, they put the bowl sitting in that hand and drinking. But I always remember him sitting down there, sitting down beside him. And uh, I was about eight years, I think it was about eight or four was it. And he'd eat this biscuit, so much of it, maybe two quarters of it. And he'd break it off and give it to you, and he would save you a quarter of the biscuit or a third of the biscuit for yourself, and he'd give that to you. There you are, saying, I saved you that, like, you know. That would be like, you sit there talking away, like, you know, and different things, and mm. he wasn't fit to go up and go out. I'd learned a lot from him in a very short period about fishing. Yeah. He showed me how to tie hooks, uh-huh. you know, fly hooks, and... He would say, go out and look round and get a, get a duck. And I, I would catch a wild duck, yeah? And he would use his wings, the duck's wings, for the wings of the hook. And so, then there was moor hens. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was they were running all over the place, you know. And they were a pretty good runner. I could run faster than them after put ten minutes and run them down. And they'd bring them back home to him. And uh, my granny would cook them. But he'd make sure he would have them first. And he'd have all the feathers that he wanted, all the colours. And he'd put them in a little bag. And then when he'd be in good humour, when I say, here I'm Littleton, you know, Littleton would go. He'd be in good humour, he'd reach up and he'd get this little bag down, an old newspaper he'd put on his lap like that, and he'd put all the colours out and sort them out, and then he would start tying, tying these hooks in different colours that the fish would, you know, take at that certain season. And he was, God save us, so clever, he had, he had 
fingers on them. I must have been all like pitchforks. They weren't aided in the big hands, but he had the beautifulest fingers for playing the fiddle I ever seen in my life. When he was playing the fiddle, they'd be stand when he bent the finger down, they'd stand about two inches above the, the fingerboard. Wow! You know, it's just little watching them, and um, you would tie these hooks and get them all ready. And out of the blue, maybe it was illegal. You weren't allowed to do it. See, <laughs> all of a sudden, how they knew. Sergeant of the police or the, the guard used to turn up and a bottle in his hip pocket, like you know, and shake hands. And what did he got, Mick? And uh, he used to he used to have a, a round ring of thin timber with all wrapped in cloth, and he'd have all these hooks hooked onto it hanging down. And he'd say, Here, take your pick, whatever you want there. And he'd give the sergeant of the police, which he'd arrest the man down the road for doing it. <laughs> He would hand him this ring, take what you want. <laughs> I don't, but take what you want, take the ring with you, you know, give me something to do later on. And uh, they were very, 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 very highly respected people. Hey. Had nothing, but they had the respect, you know, that, that nobody in that county had. Yeah. Not, not even the richest men in that county had the respect of my grandfather or my uncles, to be quite honest with you. They had absolutely nothing, sometimes maybe not not a, a large, not enough to eat. But as I said before, in the background, the old man had plenty of collateral, but they never let it out. That's a lovely jig, that. Lovely. Yeah. Now, if you're three, you play it in one octave, that now, and find me to go with the mic. talking about your, your granddad Mickey and you were talking about how you were around there um, as a young as a young boy yes yeah. tell, tell us a little more about uh, what it was like when you were there and he played the music yeah well I was around eight years of age and um, we went to visit there of course my father was expecting his father to die so we got there support of time and uh, he was lying alongside the fire. I think he died of pleurisy pneumonia or something, and that was the old style that time to keep him warm, big torp fire and lie as near as possible, like, you know. Anyway, he was lying there, and I come, and he, he kept watching me for a good while, he said to me, and, uh, oh, God, my God, he said, my favorite. We Mickey, <laughs> we Mickey called me. No one put the arms around him and hugged him like, and I was still frightened of his beard. You know, about <laughs> eighteen, twenty inches long. And they down, they hugged me and I sat on this makeup bed they had, and uh, go on. He said, stretch down a breast, give me a cuddle, you know, and done that. And from there it went on and. 
One turned up now and one again. And I didn't know what it was all about, all these people coming, you know. Me own my God save us, where are these people going to sleep? Well, there were no place there, you know. Only a couple of beds in the house. And um, it turned out to be that there were ants that I'd never seen before. My aunt, um, uh, yeah, excuse me for a minute, and um, Francis, the, the, the other lady, I, I just can't remember her name at the moment, my mm -hmm. other aunt, and yep. um, Francis, and I uh, can't come. Okay. No, I can't just remember it. Yep. And they all come in and great big welcome for everybody hugging and kissing and the old man was lying down there now. But before everything settled down and they were all finished and had a cup of tea and ten mugs or something and uh, he called me back over to where he was again and he said, sit down beside me again. And he said to my father, pull me up a little bit in the bed. And they pulled me up, a, him up a little bit in the bed so his red was be, be sort of a 30, uh, 25 degree degree, so I'm sitting resting against the bed. And he said to John, he said, give me that fiddle. And I had noticed it, that up on the wall, round the, kind of around the corner, was this, I thought was a black fiddle but it was a tin fiddle for the age. You know, it changed, it got like rusty and keep rubbing it with the cloth <coughs> to, to keep it get from getting damp. Mm -hmm. A fiddle and bow up there, and I was excited to see that, naturally. And uh, he said, John, get me down the fiddle. And John handed him the fiddle. And he tuned it. And he played a reel. I knew the reel, even at that time, because my father was real. And the reel used to go like, that real reel. Mm -hmm. And he played that sitting back like that, you know, and he's, he could hold the fiddle up. And he never missed a note. All double stopping and creasing and everything in his bow hand, you know. And that long weapon bow hand he had. And he played that reel, and I guarantee the weren't one noted, not missing that. And when he was finished playing that, now he said, one day you'll play that reel like that, won't you? <laughs> oh, I said, Granddad, I said, I don't know, I don't think so. But anyway, now he said, I'm going to give you the fiddle, and I want you to play me a tune. And that's a great tone this fiddle had. I just made me one of my granduncles on my granny's side of the house, they called the McConnells. It was made by Mickey McConnell. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the fiddle, and it was well tuned up and everything, and all I could think on was to play, not play, but step it on one finger after another. All the um, name it had around our place that time, around time, was the boiling water. And a, a lot of people didn't like it with that name, and I didn't even know this, you know. Mm -hmm. And I said to Granddad, I'll play the boiling water. Good boy, good on you. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I was there and I kneeled on one knee and facing him like, you know. And I played the boiling water on him for, on this tin fiddle made by my granduncle. And I happened to look across, and there he was. Big tears dropping down the beard. And um, he clapped. And he said, God bless you, I'll hear you again sometime. And he pronounced it down like an word to my father. And my father was just that kindly state that he was, you know, always in. Tears dropping down and Anyway, I was chased away down to a little room down the back with a, an old double bed. They already had a double bed up in the kitchen. That's all was allowed for the house. And I put me into bed there, and as the night rolled on, and I was tired and fell asleep. 
the crowd started getting bigger. Some more of my cousins come in and they were all put in this bed as well. <laughs> and those, I think there was about nine or ten of us all at this bed, four or five of the head and four or five of the hut, bottom with one big, big, big woolen blanket on. And they were all flight, fighting about it. That's what woke me up. But anyway, there was one boy who was a lot older than the rest of them. He he won he won the blanket. He had the blanket to keep him warm all night. So we lay there all night and usual thing in the morning, get up and do your call of duty and everything. And everything seemed so strange. You know, you you'd hear a penny drop anywhere. And I said to my father, I said, Daddy, what's wrong? He knew it, I knew something was wrong. And he broke down and crying, he couldn't even tell me for a good while. Mm -hmm. Oh, he said, your granddad died last night. And I felt like a sheet, a sheet of light that had struck me. I said, where is he? Well, no, I said, you better not know. I said, I want to see him. And already had come in, a man who doing, used to do all that sort of thing around the parish. Shaved him, cut his beard off. And he had the smallest face I've ever seen on a big man in my life. You know, a little tiny, sharp face come down like that and was so pretty looking, you know. And I never was so, fr so frightened of anybody in all my life as it was to see my own grandfather dead. A <laughs> back pedal about four or five foot away from me. <laughs> and that's the way it was until the funeral. Mm -hmm. But God save us, they come from far near. To right out in this place was just a little narrow country road where you could dunk in cart or a small car could yeah. pull off the road and let the other one past. I don't think I ever saw so many people in all my life to saw your <laughs> on on Friday night at or the folk festival. <laughs> the folk festival. I never saw so many people, mm. and a lot of them was carrying fiddles. And we had about six, seven miles to go to the, the burial ground. Took them to the chapel, and mass was said for them in Irish, and there was a lot of priests there and everything and. A lot of dignitaries around the place I never seen before, like, you know, mm -hmm. stiff collars and everything like this, and these, these suits like velvet on collars, real dear stuff that time, like, you know, the chapel was packed. And uh, mass was said in Irish for him, mm -hmm. and everything laid out, and um, they took him over to the burial ground, and uh, they laid him down there in the grave, like, and that frightened the life out of me. You know, been eight years of age. And when they start throwing in the soil and different things, like, you know, I realised, well, that's the end of my grandfather. I had enough sense to know that them things don't happen and never happen again. Mm -hmm. But then they all left and shook hands and hugged each other and kissed, and there was bottles of whiskey being slapped around here and broke to their hands around here. And anyway, after about a, an hour after the funeral, they all were there talking about him and some of them listening a little bit of this tune. Do you remember this one he used to play? Or do you remember this one he used to play? And they were all half cutters at that time. And my uncle said, may God rest them now. Well, he said, boys, it's going, time to go and let them lie and, lie and rest. Now and go down home, he said. God help them. <laughs> went down to his house. I think there were nearly as many fiddles here as there were in here. <laughs> All these fiddles was all tuned up in a small, oh, small room, not much bigger than this one here. There were fiddle players sitting out on the rail track, on the sleepers of the rail track. They were sitting on the branches of the trees, all, all playing the one tune, and not one of them was missing a bar. And hey, listening to all that, I sort of, for the time being, I sort of forgot all about my grandfather, like you know. Mm -hmm. And that went on, I think, to about 12 o'clock at night. Do you know the names of any of the musicians that were there? Oh, they're, they're dead now. Oh, I'm sure they, they would they're, be. They're, yeah. Yes, they're dead too. There was a, a, a fiddle player there. He was only known as the lone boy. He lived about miles in the bog. And I, I remember hearing him. 
But um, my common sense told me to know he was great, but he wasn't as great as my grandfather, you know. And uh, I think Neely Boyle was there mm-hmm. at the funeral. And Neely Boyle's brother, schoolmaster, he was Master Boyle. And the Gillespies, they, all, they were from all over. You just couldn't remember them, like, you know, but anyone special playing the fiddle, I couldn't remember because I never heard them before. And Huey Gillespie, my grandfather taught him before he went to America. Mm. And he'd come over and pick me up in his arms. <laughs> he said, I only remember, he said, one day he said, when you grow up and I come back, he said, you'll play for me, <laughs> you know? And I was so pleased, you know? And uh, it was a very great, lonely session. Yeah. yeah. So everyone expected you to be a musician. Oh this yes, yes. Everyone in the town, even when a little boy playing football in the bare feet, like you know, and uh, you couldn't miss but hear. You never wanted to hear, but you might get your foot cut and you had to go and have a dress somewhere, and always someone say, "Oh, they'll say this is young Mickey. <laughs> this is the next generation." You're the one who's going to replace your grandfather and all this. I didn't really know what they meant or anything at all about it, like, you know. Yeah, but it was, that was the, the Doherty's were going to be the musicians. Oh, yes. Like they were predicting this, the old, especially the old people, the old women. You were going to be the next, but they were wrong, right? They were out by miles, like, you know. It was John, like, you know, because my father then died very shortly after the old man, like, you know. Yeah. And... Uh, John took over then as the leading pointer, like, you know, and uh, he never, um, how would I put it? He never really wanted to be anybody. He wanted you to know him, but don't come in on me. Did you ever get that feeling about somebody you met? No. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was always the impression I got of him. He would shake hands with somebody and he'd look at them and he would step back a couple of spaces. This is John we're talking this about. This is the John you're talking about now, like, yeah. you know. And my father used to say to, oh, well, they're talking about Arctic, no, he didn't miss, you know, he'd point up there. And, uh, yeah. So now you you were saying before, you used to, when when you were younger than this, yeah. you used to sit while your grandfather Oh, practiced. yes, oh, no matter where he was when he'd come there, you know, I was either on his knee till he got, tired holding me on his knee and he would move me down and put his big feet together and he had big hobnail boots he wore that really wore him and he would put me right sitting on his feet like that a hip on each sh- shoe or boot like you know <laughs> and a hand down beside balance yourself to get up and, and these uh, corduroy trousers on and he, he would then start playing the fiddle mm-hmm. and sometimes he'd throw his left or his right leg over each other like you know and he used to he used to wear these corduroy trousers. And gosh, you'd hear this whistle a mile away, you know. And he'd be sitting, he'd be interested, and sometimes you'd look at him. And he used to take such funny tones out of the bow. You know, it's, it's, you might look up and see what was happening. Coming down, you know, with just one sweep of the bow, you mightn't see the, the top of that bow to it hit the bottom. It right come right down to the bridge before you could see see as the the end of the bow, and then they go up the same way again, and then they go into a shiver part. The reel was required for, or how you were to play it, and anyway, play with a very short bow, and you, again you couldn't see the the bow properly. All you could see is the kind of a dark shadow passing you like that. Oh, I had God saves you. The bow hand was uh, it was just magic. He really could do that, but there again, he was, he was very lucky. He never had bad health. He never had arthritis. His hands, like he could do anything with them. He could get them all together, and you'd hear them crack, and he would pull them before he'd pay, and then they might stretch a half an inch. You know, watch them. <laughs> oh, there were some some beautiful times. Yeah. Thank you. 
Mick Doherty and Rob Zielinski playing The Wheels of the World from their CD Out West. Uh, so, yeah, um, what do you make of that, Darren? It's just we're, we're so lucky that we've we've got something like that to go and listen to. It's it's a treasure. And to think that that those stories, well, so many of those stories were, were kept secret for so many years. Yeah. It's just yeah, mind-boggling. You know, he he reminded me actually just uh, when I was listening to him as well that that um, I was reminded of um, I think it was Joe Fitzgerald saying to us that there were all these players who had never been recorded who were great players mm-hmm. who lived up round round their bit where they lived and how lucky that uh, Kevin Bradley and Rob Zielinski managed to get Mick recorded like this because um, I I just think it's like you say, it's a treasure. So yeah. it's all there. It's all available via our uh, show notes. So go over to those at the bottom of the episode and you'll be able to link through to this and it's kind of amazing stuff. So, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say the usual thanks to um, the people that have gone over to Patreon during the week. Um, look, we're, we're surprised that there's people, as many people going over at the minute, considering how globally we're in such a crap position at the minute so thank you so much to those people and those people that have raised their um their patrons their what do they call them what are they called their subs subs their tears thank you so much that's huge as well so thank you so much for that um as always look, we're always going to ask for new subscribers people come and go particularly in um this climate so if you have the means to become a patron please do over at patreon.com forward slash Bellarney Pilgrims um, look the show is always going to be free that's the model we've from day one said we're um, we're going to try and, and, and pursue so uh, the other side of that is it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money to, to keep it running and keep it going so if you can become a subscriber please do it pays for those that 99% of people that can't afford so if you can please pop over that would be really really appreciated so uh, thanks again to Kevin Bradley and to Rob Zielinski and to everyone at the National Library for making these files available to us. And uh, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed that. Catch you next week. See ya. Hi, my name is Pietro. Please become a good subscriber to the podcast. Thank you.